Hello, and welcome to Buffalo HealthCast, a podcast by students, faculty, and staff of the University at Buffalo's School of Public Health and Health Professions. We're your co-hosts, Tia Palermo, Jessica Kruger, Skylar Lawson. And in this podcast, we cover topics related to health equity here in Buffalo, around the U.S., and globally. In this first semester of the podcast, we're taking a deeper look at racism and health. We'll be talking to experts around the U.S., as well as individuals here on campus and in the Buffalo community who are working to remove inequities to improve population health and well-being. You'll hear from practitioners, researchers, students, and faculty from other universities who have made positive changes to improve health equity and inclusion. Today's guest is Cindy McGacken who is a CEO of Peace Prince, a local organization helping individuals who are just as involved and recently released from a justice uh, setting. She holds a degree in Health and Human Services from the University of Buffalo. Welcome, Cindy. Great to be here. Could you tell me a little bit more about Peace Prince and what they do for folks in the Western New York area? Sure. Peace Prince is a reentry organization that has been around since 1985. Uh, we have all sorts of facets of programming, working with all sorts of individuals from all walks of life. Um, the common thread is that there is justice involvement on some level. So we work with every jurisdiction level, local, state, and federal. We have housing programs. We have intensive case management models, so more community-based. We work with young people, families, and we have our food pantry. So we do a lot with folks, both inside the facilities as well as out in the community. That's excellent. It's so great to hear that folks are working with individuals in all sorts of settings. Now, can you tell me a little bit more about the background and scale of incarceration in the United States? Yeah, we are uh, certainly number one in this space. Um, we have over 2.3 million individuals that are incarcerated on some level. So whether that is local, state, or federal, and another four and a half million that are out under community supervision actively. So we definitely uh, incarcerate at the highest volume. Um, we are, in putting it in another perspective, only 5% of the world's population, but we incarcerate 25% of those incarcerated here in the United States. So um, incarceration, mass incarceration, mass supervision is a way of life here. Wow. It's um, amazing to think about not only people who are physically within a facility, but under supervision in some way, shape, or form a lot of individuals. And I'm guessing, I'm guessing this affects the communities. Can you tell oh. me a little bit more about what you see? Yeah. So, you know, you figure 2.3 million people are currently behind bars, but 95% of those individuals are coming back into our community. So they make up what is now that number of four and a half million that are currently under supervision, but that's not counting the individuals who have satisfied that supervision, who are no longer under, or may have gone to jail, but are back out and did not have supervision. So we have this plethora of people that aren't even accounted for in this mix as well. Um, but the key here is that 95% of the individuals who are incarcerated will come out likely under supervision back into their community. 
And that in and of itself causes huge ripple effect because you've extracted somebody for an extended period of time and then placed them back into the community where they have to assimilate. Um, On top of that, there's a ton of research to show that there is an increased or an elevated rate of chronic disease, of substance abuse, of mental illness, of health-related concerns when an individual is incarcerated. And, And a lot of that has to do or is fueled by environment. And then we're going to release individuals, right? 95%, that's our number, back out into the community when we've already increased some risk. Um, so it's a very overwhelming system. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up the the challenges with chronic diseases among folks. Um, and as they're released back into communities, could you tell me a little bit more about some of those um, health challenges in which people are facing after they've been um, released? Yeah. I mean, when you're talking about chronic illness, we've had individuals that have had um, pretty intense surgeries. Um, So we're talking heart conditions. We're talking about things like that, that health ailments that have helped or happened while they were incarcerated because they're also older in age, right? We have an aging prison population right now. So we're not talking about as many young people, not that that really makes a difference as it still impacts your health overall. But we have seen now the effects of mass incarceration for decades. And what we have is an aging incarcerated population who's now going to come out into the community. So they're already older in age. You have naturally occurring um, diseases and illnesses that uh, we see in the community often happen a little bit later in life happening earlier because they're incarcerated. So you will have like diabetes, you will have, uh, unfortunately, we've seen a lot of folks with cancer um, coming out more recently. You have individuals that have had um, kidney failure or they're ha- the, the, the amount of medications um, individuals tend to pass through our doors carrying with them. And then that's not counting where they stand in terms of the mental illness right? If there is trauma that's been experienced, they're battling depression, or they do have a serious mental illness documented, and there's medications and or treatment required in alignment with that. So we have folks that kind of run the gamut when it comes to what the need might be. Uh, What we find to be most overwhelming is that when an individual returns, they don't have a history per se of having a family doctor or their health history documented um, that is available to agencies in the community once they're released. That information stays in prison. And so it stays in the facilities and doesn't come out with them. Um, And so that's very overwhelming. We find that they have a very limited supply of their um, uh, medications made available to them. Sometimes individuals don't even have active Medicaid when they come out. And so if that's not already activated pre-release, we're starting behind right from the onset of release. And that's only if we're lucky enough to have an individual pass through our doors and we become aware. Um, You know, we certainly do not work with everybody that returns from incarceration that comes back to our community. And when we talk about these huge numbers of releases, we have unfortunately a lot of individuals who fall in the cracks. 
who are not necessarily connected with services or don't have somebody to try and connect them with appropriate resources. Wow. So when we say incarceration is a public health problem, this is really hitting on so many levels. Not only while individuals are being incarcerated, not only communities, but also this can impact their health as people are released, not knowing their medical records coming out possibly sicker than when they came in. And so this is something that we really need to talk about within the public health community more than we do now. Um, What would you like to see if if you had a magic wand and could change the system uh, after someone was released? uh, What do you think would be the ideal way to help people kind of go back into their communities? I would say with my magic wand, we would have increased accountability and communication. Um, Those two things, I think, would shift one's access and what it looks like to connect with resources from inside to outside. Unfortunately, what we find is that communication is stunted at release. Sometimes it's non-existent or we're incredibly limited at what's made available or what the person is bringing with them. You also have such unique stories person to person. So if an individual was incarcerated when they were 18 years old and is now being released at age 55, their entire adult life has very little record outside of what happened in the facilities. That's a really difficult space to start and to be able to connect somebody with resources. But then on the outside, That's really where I think accountability is huge, is that we do have a multitude of of providers, of helping spaces. Another area where we struggle is that there is zero accountability on the side of providers. So when you talk about social determinants of health, you talk about access to services, you talk about this is a public health crisis, accountability plays a role because service providers also realize that there's little happening prior. So there's little expected after. And with that mentality, sadly, being at the forefront of what fuels a lot of this, individuals and their families are set up to fail every step of the way and then are blamed for it. But in fact, we've made it incredibly difficult for them to access what they need. Um, It's very frustrating. So I would say communication and accountability on both sides you know, certainly necessary. And I think that would improve things a lot. I I can't imagine spending the majority of your adult life in a criminal justice setting and then being released and not knowing how to navigate the system, possibly even how to advocate for yourself. And going through that with a chronic condition could be incredibly challenging for individuals. So Tell me a little bit more of what sort of, when an, when an individual is typically released, do they typically have Medicaid? Are they connected with a primary care doctor? What is that communication or maybe that communication gap between release and, um, you know, uh, during release? So in a perfect world, yes, they have Medicaid already activated pre-release. We know our world is not perfect. (laughs) So sadly, uh, it's kind of a a toss, right? We really don't know upon arrival if somebody is one of the lucky few that did have their Medicaid activated 
prior to release, or if they fall into the group that did not. And I do, I will say we see more and more that fall into the did not get connected. Unfortunately, I think there's multitude of reasons for a while. The state was pushing on a larger scale, connecting individuals prior to release. I was seeing change as an agency. We were noticing that at release, more folks were coming out with their Medicaid activated. However, policy changes COVID, all sorts of shifts to the way we were doing business has changed a lot of the way things were operating. And so now individuals are getting out faster. Individuals who didn't think they were getting out and had more time all of a sudden don't and are eligible for release because of law changes and policy changes that have happened and sweeping reform that has come in without prior planning to ensure that they don't fall through the cracks because there's not an ability on the system side to catch up or prepare for that in advance. Sometimes it's happening in incredibly short notice. And so we have seen over the last 18 to 24 months sweeping changes in New York State and its impact on pre-release planning and what that looks like. Upon So already not great has become incredibly difficult. And, you know, when you break it down, I truly do believe, and I spent a lot of time going inside state facilities prior to COVID, you have some awesome people that do work in, in these facilities that are working towards the greater good. But facilities by design are in rural communities, are not typically connected to spaces where the majority of individuals are going back. And it is difficult on the side of the staffing even to have updated information, be able to access service and advocate for an individual prior to release, even in the old system, because it just wasn't created to make it easy. Um, I think COVID took that and dropped it on its head on a whole different way, because all these agencies, whether we did great business or poor business, all of us were impacted by COVID. Many agencies shut their doors, changed the way they were doing things, shut down particular services or programs. And there's no way for information to transfer to the 50 plus facilities across New York state. And that's not even counting the jails. That's, that's state facilities, right? And so this is a big deal. When you're talking about pre-release planning, when you're talking about access to information and connecting an individual for post-release service, it's become even more difficult. Yeah, I know many of us really want reform in the criminal justice system and really want to change the way things are being done, but you're right. We're not thinking about some of those other ripple effects that this has, especially on the individuals who are being released and not having that planning and that opportunity to get things in line or even communicate to organizations in which they may be going to or working with. Right, right. When the primary method of communication is a typed or handwritten letter, and I mean typed from like a typewriter um, or handwritten letter, it's, you know, it's kind of a, I guess, a needle in a haystack. Like you throw it out there and just hope whomever you sent that letter to, to offer or ask is still around. And not only are they still around that they open your letter and then from opening it, that they actually respond to you. Um, these are all things that in our world today, in our society, we don't really do that. 
we want instant, you know, even as providers. So we want to be able to email, we want to be able to pick up the phone, worst case scenario and call. But sadly, you got to take the time to handwrite or type a letter response back. Um, And that's how information is passed. Um, And that's pretty difficult, right? When you're prepping for a release. Wow. It's like time traveling uh, to a different world. (laughs) Yep. So these are a lot of really heavy topics that I don't think a lot of folks think about on a daily basis. So when you think about what your organization does and the impact that you have on individuals, could you tell us a little bit about some success stories that you've had and what um, your organization is working towards in the future? Absolutely. You know, I've been doing this for about 11 years now. um, And sometimes just getting connected with services will be success, right? Or it could be you have a complicated story and it's taken three staff and a phone call from me and constant letter writing and bothering people to get you a birth certificate. And sometimes it's that, right? And we have to celebrate even the tiniest of wins. But on a large scale, when we find folks satisfy the terms of their supervision, take it to that next level. They've got a job. They've rekindled relationships with their loved ones. They're driving. They own their own vehicle. Some of them have their own places, whether that's you know an actual house that they've purchased um, to opening their own businesses, right? It depends on the person because it's so highly individualized. But when you hear each step of the way, these little successes that compound into something larger because they beat the odds. I think that for us is what fuels us to keep going. I mean, we all, we're all human. There's not one of us that doesn't wake up some days and just not want to do something, feel unmotivated, or make maybe not the greatest decision. We all do it. That's, that's the beauty of it. That's actually life. That, that is not being a good or bad person. That is not being incarcerated or not. Um, that's truly life. We all experience this. And the individuals we work with are living just like we are. And so we look for all of these little wins. And in some cases, these larger wins of where does this take us? Where does this go? We have one individual who's passed through most recently. Um, he actually was highlighted in our annual appeal this year, but uh, Eddie is his name. And Eddie has gone through our Bissonette House transitional program. So fresh out of the facility, graduated, moved into our Hope House program. He's off parole. He's working. He owns two vehicles at this point. Um, he is thriving. And he's so excited. He's even like advocating for people to make donations to us, right? Like, I mean, this is, it's just, it's mind blowing, right? When you think of these, these wins and, you know, for us, I guess it's these stories, right? Um, I have another young lady that, I don't know, from when I met her five years ago to now, um, she's working two jobs. She's in her own apartment. I mean, she's doing great. And she's off supervision, right? Like these are the things that, and we remain in contact. We have conversation. Um, She has her ups and downs. Life still happens. Um, But these are the stories. And I firmly believe it's access 
to that opportunity. And unfortunately, this particular industry in the space often denies access, truly denies access to individuals, and then blames them for not persevering or trying to push past what we denied. And when you just offer that little bit that opens up access, I mean, people just move with it. And it's pretty amazing to see. Thank you for sharing those stories. I mean, I'm sure you have hundreds and hundreds more of the successes that you find uh, with all the individuals that you work with and uh, your staff work with. It's It's been really interesting to learn more and more about incarceration and the U.S., um, and see some of the disparities with things that you have talked about, whether who's being incarcerated, but also the access. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. You know, over the years, I think what was one of the most eye-opening for me, and I am, I identify as a white female. I grew up in a suburban town and I come back or I move into the city and I start working with individuals and people of color that are justice involved. And what I started seeing was the inconsistencies of individuals passing through my services. This is all walks of what I've done. So all the spaces where I've worked and participated or volunteered time and depending on what they look like, what I Get, draw from them in terms of their conviction or the amount of incarceration they've done very greatly simply by the color of their skin. And this is before we were, sadly, even recognizing it. It just happened to be something I was noticing that I could talk to a young man who's in his 20s who's white. And this was his first time incarcerated and he only was in for you know a year and is now out on parole. Then I look at a young man, same age, who's black, who, in my opinion, has a lesser conviction, but was incarcerated for a longer period of time and also got a longer sentence attached to him, which is fascinating to me. I could not wrap my head around how or why it was happening. And I was newer into the industry, you know, at that time, but it was just fascinating to me how no one talked about it. No one recognized that as a concern or an issue. And truthfully, that the majority of the individuals I served were people of color. That was the majority of the individuals. Why was that? Why is that? I am thankful that we are moving in a direction of acknowledging it now. I think we have a long way to go, but we're at least recognizing that there's some error there, but it's very real. And so it started to come down to communicating with individuals and just point pointedly saying it's not fair, it's not right, but we need to use the fact that I am a white woman and I'm a CEO to break barriers. It's not fair and it's not right that I have to use that, but I want you to know I recognize the privilege that I have with it. And now I need you to share with me what's happening and together we will go through this until the world shifts enough that we don't have to do this and that your voice is heard. But our choices are get angry and have no change, nothing happens, or go through this together. And that has been, you know, I guess my motto and the way we've gone through things. And I think that's rippled out through the agency um, and become ingrained in the culture of the organization with love 
to see full scale change. And I can give you countless stories of where we've had to use our privilege, where I personally have had to in situations and it shouldn't be that way. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point in the fact that we really need advocacy on this issue from all levels. And, you know, sadly, at this point in time, we do have to use our privilege to speak for others who are not heard as much as others are in this world. And um, hopefully, I'm right there with you. I can't wait to see change continue. And I think by spreading awareness about what's happening um, as people are being released and even the disparities in which are occurring in and out of the criminal justice system, I hope to see that. And I am so glad that there are so many passionate people like you working on this project and many projects like it around uh, the U.S. So I thank you so much for your time. And before we go, I would love to know what's next for you in the organization. Well, we are looking to keep moving and grooving, uh, challenging the status quo, and I'm hopeful that we will uh, bring about some new housing opportunities, hopefully sooner rather than later. But that's a difficult thing to to maneuver through uh, in terms of the politics of it. But um, we're really excited just to grow as an organization. So we like to extend our housing accessibility um, and really start paying attention to, I think I I mentioned earlier on, the um, aging incarcerated population. Well, if you are older while you're in, you are even older when you get out. And, you know, finding suitable housing for individuals that are older in age and appropriate housing, if you will, that is clean, safe, and affordable for somebody. Um, We are looking to kind of fill a gap that we're seeing or recognizing um, trending higher here locally, which I'm assuming is happening nationally. Uh, And then our our in-prison program, we have a collaboration with the local jail with an innovative program called Project Blue. And our goal is for our program that has served just over 300 individuals um, over the last couple of years could expand to become a jail-wide program. And so hopeful that that's on the horizon and will continue to move. Um, And that program is currently being followed by a team of researchers from Georgia State assigned to us from the federal government. So the Department of Justice and the Bureau of Justice Assistance gave us a grant to actually collect data points on this program and determine if it could be a national best practice model that we could see implemented in other spaces. So kind of cool happening here in Erie County. That's fantastic. I can't wait to see where you go and the organization goes um, in helping others. We'll link in our show notes to uh, Project Blue and some other information about the organization. I'm Dr. Jessica Kruger, and I was joined by Cindy McGacken today, the CEO of Peace Prints. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been another episode of Buffalo HealthCast. Tune in next time to hear more about health equity in Buffalo, the U.S., and around the globe.